Michael Curry is the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, which means that um, he's sort of like, um, kind of like the Pope, but not really, like if, if, if the Catholic Church were only in America, he'd be that Pope. Like if it, the, anyway, that's not important. What's important is he is an absolutely outstanding preacher. Um, he is a, a born evangelist, and he is somebody who is um, just um, an outstanding uh, uh, communicator of God's Word. And uh, I would uh, commend it to you this event. It's free. They're basically going to have... Uh, he, he's coming into town for next weekend for this diocesan convention, which is as exciting as it sounds. But, um, but Friday night, he's going to be doing this this event at Goucher. So um, it, tickets are free. You just have to, to reserve them. Uh, I believe it's at 7. Uh, but uh, we can, I, I think the link is in the E! New Hope. Um, <clears throat> also this week, um, is Joe here? Did Joe go away? Stepped Joe stepped out. That's too bad. See, Joe on Wednesday night is going to see Metallica. Anybody else going to see Metallica down at, down at M&T Bank Stadium? Joe gets to see Metallica Wednesday night. Um, you know, I've found that one of the ways, and it took me a while to realize this is what happens, is one of the ways that, um, that God enables me to, to hear Him is by listening to songs over and over again. I've kind of will sort of enter a zone where I'm able to just think, feel, perceive differently, sometimes more clearly. My, my family worries about me sometimes when, when I'll be in the, sitting in the garage for like a long time after I get home and I'm just sort of listening to the same thing over and over. They worry less if I don't have the garage door down. I learned that. Um, even though it's a Prius, it, the uh, engine does turn on once in a while. So, you know... Um, but uh, but the the two songs that I've been spending a lot of time listening to in the last few weeks uh, are the song One by Metallica and I Know That My Redeemer Liveth from Handel's Messiah. Um, the sound system in my car, I think, will need a great deal of therapy um, if, if that sort of thing is necessary because it's got to be very confused. Um, alternating between this, you know, uh, late 80s thrash metal and, you know, a somewhat earlier uh, work. Uh, but they actually all kind of tie together to what we're talking about today. I know that my Redeemer liveth is the aria that the soprano sings in Handel's Messiah right after the Hallelujah Chorus. So if you've ever gone to see a performance of Messiah, you know, the tradition is that people stand up during the Hallelujah Chorus, and the, the historians d disagree as to whether that is because uh, when it was first performed, the king stood up, and so everybody had to do what the king did, um, or whether people were actually, you know, rejoicing in the resurrection. Um, either way, um, people stand up, and then Right after that, people sit down. And so because people are in the business of sitting down and kind of getting their, their heads back together, um, they, they may sometimes not necessarily click on this piece, which actually I think is one of the most beautiful arias in 
in uh, Messiah. And it, 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 starts out, it starts off out of Job. It's, I know that my Redeemer liveth. Right? From Job chapter 19 comes uh, just a few verses after my life verse, which is Job 19.17, which is my breath is offensive to my wife and I'm loathsome to my own family. But a little bit later in verse 25, Job chapter 19, verse 25, I know that my Redeemer liveth and that He shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. The worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh will I see God. And then the librettist jumps to our passage in 1 Corinthians 15. For now is Christ risen from the dead, the firstfruits of them that sleep. I know that my Redeemer liveth and that He shall stand the latter day upon the earth and the worms destroy this body yet in my flesh shall I see God for now is Christ risen from the dead the first fruits of them that sleep and that's 1 Corinthians 15.20 Paul goes on to say that since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when it comes, those who belong to him. And then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he's destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. See, death is not part of the original plan. We go back to Genesis and we read in chapter 2 that God planted a garden in the east in Eden and, and there He put the man that he had formed. He made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, to tend it, to take care of it. And he commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now we know what happens. Adam and Eve eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They take that which is not what they're supposed to have. They take for themselves that which God has prohibited. They decide that they know better than God how they ought to live their lives and as a result, death enters the picture. Death begins at that moment, in part because they're cast out of the garden. They can no longer eat from the tree of life. But death comes in so many other ways as well. We read in the 
story of the curse that God increases the woman's pain and childbearing. He curses the ground such that the man will basically work himself into it through toilsome labor all the days of his life. He will grind himself down as he tries to scrape a living from the earth until the day when he grinds himself down to the dust from which he came. Everything from that day on is tainted by the flavor of death. Even Adam's naming of the woman Eve, Chava, which means life. I read that as an angry, cynical move on his part. Now, death was not part of the original plan, which means that every death, every death is a tragedy. A few weeks ago, the prescribed reading for our friends in the Episcopal Church was John 11, which is the story of the raising of Lazarus. Remember, Lazarus was a friend of Jesus's. His sisters, Mary and Martha, were friends as well, and Lazarus gets sick. And so Mary and Martha sends word to Jesus. Say, hey, my brother's sick. Can you come and take care of him? And Jesus, when he heard it, said, Nah, this sickness is not unto death. No, it's for God's glory that God's Son may be glorified through it. Yet one more time that Jesus says something that's not really helpful to the people who are coming to him. And he says to his disciples, Let's go back to Judea after he waits around for two days. (laughs) And they're like, "Um, Judea is where there are those people who are trying to stone you. Maybe that's not the best place for us to go right now. (laughs) And he says, oh, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. They're like, you know, that's great. If he's asleep, then he's going to get better. It'll be like an induced coma, maybe, and then he'll he'll be okay. And so it's all going to be good, right? Um, and you know we don't need to go there and risk danger. It, Jesus had been speaking of his death, but once, as you often get in the Gospels, you have the narrator going, "By the way, Jesus meant he was dead, but his disciples were stupid and didn't understand that." So then he told them plainly, "Look, guys, Lazarus is dead." But for your sake, I'm glad I'm not there so that you may believe. So let's go. And Thomas uh, is like, that's great. Why don't we go too? And then like Lazarus, we'll be dead. Because everybody's trying to kill Jesus and everybody with him. So, so Jesus gets there. And there are all these people who are there who would come out to, to comfort Mary and Martha on the death of their brother. Jesus gets there and Martha says, you know, if you had been here, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But I know, I know, even now, God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And she's like, I know. Thank you for reminding me about the doctrine of resurrection that is current in first century Judaism where we are anticipating a corporate resurrection of Israel at the end of days. Uh, Eschatology is not helping me right now, Jesus. 
Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me will live, even though he dies. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, I believe it. I've got my theology right, but I'm grieving the loss of my brother. So she goes to Mary, like you try to talk to him. Mary comes, same line. If you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and all the other neighbors who were with her weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit. He was troubled. He says, where have you laid him? Well, come and see, they replied. And Jesus wept. By the way, if you're embarking on a program of Bible memorization, John 11.35 is a great place to start. Right? You're going to nail that one right away. But not only is it the shortest verse in the Bible, it is probably one that is more pregnant theologically than any other. Jesus knows, of course, at this point, he is about to raise Lazarus from the dead. I mean, the, the, the whole time, John's very clear, and both the narrator and Jesus are saying, I know exactly what's going on here. I've got a plan. I'm going to actually demonstrate something that's going to knock the socks off of everybody here and also make people all the more interested in killing me. Uh, but Jesus weeps. It's as though Jesus is reminded, even though he is about to flip death on its back, He's reminded that it is still at work. So he's deeply moved. He comes to the tomb. He says, take away the stone. Um, Martha says, that's maybe not a good idea because he's been dead for four days. Like if we were in Iceland, that would not be a problem. But we're here fairly close to the equator. It gets real hot here. And even though we're just coming off the the rainy season, it's still kind of warm. And uh, actually, the way the King James renders it, Lord, he stinketh. Because he'd been there for four days. He says, look, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you'd see the glory of God? They took away the stone. Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know you always hear me, but I'm saying this for the benefit of all the chuckleheads standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And then when he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And he comes out, hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, anticipating Tim Gunn by two millennia, oh, that is not a good look for you. Take off the grave clothes, let him go. And so when I preached this at a a neighboring church a a few weeks back, I pointed out how Jesus defeated death. How death was the enemy. The last enemy to be destroyed. And Jesus defeated death and He demonstrated His power over death in His own resurrection, anticipated by the fact that He raised Lazarus from the dead, that He brought back Lazarus. And afterward, one lady said to me, you know, death isn't always an enemy. Sometimes death is welcome. And on the one hand, there's truth to it. 
But I think we can't allow that to paper over the deeper fact that death is at its core the enemy of humanity as God designed it. See, another song I listened to over and over and over was The Great Gig in the Sky from Pink Floyd's 1972 classic Dark Side of the Moon, probably the one album I've listened to more than any other in my life. And that's the one where you get all these spoken word pieces dropped in over the music. Pink Floyd had basically just done all these interviews with all kinds of people, musicians. Apparently Paul McCartney was interviewed, but his, his bit never made it onto the album. But this is a comment from an uh, you know, engineer at, at Abbey Road. He says, I'm not frightened of dying. Any time will do. Why should I be frightened of dying? There's no reason for it. You've got to go sometime. And on the one hand, yes, this whistling past the graveyard is something that, that makes sense because we know, after all, that the mortality rate is still hovering pretty close to 100%. But we see, and you certainly see if you ever go to a hospital, that the will to live is deeply hardwired into us. That people, even at their sickest, whether they be little babies or people at the end of a long life, fight against death. They rage against the dying of the light. The will to resist death is hardwired into us. That's why it is so shocking and so difficult to comprehend when somebody commits suicide. It is so counter to who we are. I believe, I really do believe, that if we could be inside the head of somebody who chose to take their own life, we would be in a world that did not make sense. We would be perceiving things that are simply not coherent. That will to live is so strong within us. And of course, the Metallica tune, one, is about a soldier who has had his arms, his legs, his sight, his hearing taken away from him by a landmine. And he's, it's basically the voice of him lying in bed, begging to die. He's unable to communicate with the world outside of him. He's unable to hear anything but the thoughts inside his own head. He's utterly miserable. On the one hand, he prays, please God, wake me. On the other hand, he desires death. The fact is, when we welcome death, if in any sense we welcome death, if in any sense we recognize when somebody has died, perhaps after a a painful illness, we will say, well, there is a mercy to that. There is a relief to that. That's what this woman was trying to say to me after church a few weeks ago, that sometimes living is so painful, so difficult, so horrible, that, that death seems to be the better option. But I think when we think that way, it's only because we recognize that this is something that is coming anyway. 
that death is coming to us anyway. And if there is a way we can have it come to us that is less painful, that is less awful, less humiliating, that we might choose that. Not that we would be glad of it, but that we would prefer it to the alternative. Part of the fun of being me is I read books about death. <laughs> a couple new memoirs came out this year. One is uh, called Losing Susan by a priest in New York named Victor Austin. His wife had a 19-year battle with cancer. The other is, uh, I read recently is by Paul Kalanithi. His book is called When Breath Becomes Air. Now, both of these are, are Christian believers. Paul Kalanithi was a neurosurgeon very gifted and uh, somebody who clearly was was rising in his field when he found out that he had cancer. And so when breath becomes air, as the title sort of reflects the fact that this breath that animates, that gives life, is at some point simply air. It's air when you breathe it in, and it's air when you breathe it out, but while you are breathing, it is breath, but after that it's just air. He talked uh, about going through med school, beginning of med school when you have anatomy lab. He said the way we had to deal with this, the way we had to do it was, was that we objectified the dead, literally reducing them to organs, tissues, nerves, muscles. On the first day of anatomy class, you could not deny the humanity of the corpse, but by the time you'd skinned the limbs, sliced through inconvenient muscles, pulled out the lungs, cut open the heart, and removed a lobe of the liver, it was hard to recognize this pile of tissue as human. Anatomy lab in the end becomes less a violation of the sacred and more something that interferes with happy hour. And that realization discomforts. In our rare reflective moments, we were all silently apologizing to our cadavers. Not because we sensed the transgression, but because we did not. Recognizing that a dead body is dead is a, a reminder. When we see a dead body, it's a reminder that something is not the way it ought to be. That's not what these bodies were designed for. They were designed for life, not for death. Austin speaks very literally of breath becoming air when he talks about going into his wife's hospital room on the morning she died. He says, I walked in and her eyes seemed dry, but her breathing was regular. And I went to sit down next to her and took her hand which was cold, and then the doctor came in the doorway and said, I'm sorry. Her breathing was only regular because the ventilator hadn't been shut off yet. It was no longer breath. It was just air being pumped in and out of a dead body. This is not the way things are supposed to be. The good news, of course, is that death is not only the last enemy to be destroyed, but that death is 
facing its own death sentence. That the last enemy to be destroyed is death. We know that Jesus will destroy death. One of the awesome things about our tradition of as people who speak English is that we have this literary tradition going back almost 1,500 years. There's this one poem. This one's probably about 1,100 years old called The Dream of the Rude. Or properly pronounced would be The Dream of the Road. It's an old English word for cross. This person has a, a vision. He has this dream where he sees the cross, and then, then the cross speaks to him. And it says, it was long ago, I still remember it, that I was cut down at the edge of the wood, removed from my root. Strong enemies seized me there, made a show of me in public, commanded me to raise up their criminals. Men carried me on their shoulders there until they set me on a hill. Enemies enough fixed me in place there. Then I saw the Lord of mankind hastening with great courage when he was intent on climbing onto me. Have you ever thought about Jesus as hastening with great courage, intent to climb onto me? And we often think about the pain, the sorrow, the agony involved in Jesus' crucifixion. But there's an aspect. There's an aspect of the cross where Jesus is like, let me at it one of the awesome things about Anglo-Saxon spirituality. There's just a really muscular quality to it. You think like Gimli at church, and that's basically what you get. Burly, hairy Christianity where Jesus, the young hero, who was God Almighty, stripped himself strong and resolute, and he climbed onto the high gallows, brave in the sight of many, when he was intent on setting mankind free. Says Jesus, much as he's portrayed in John's gospel, not anybody's victim. He's the one who's taking charge. He's the one who is doing the things that need to be done. And the way he destroys death is by taking it on himself. The way he destroys sin is by taking it all on himself. And then God gets to work out His mighty power by raising Jesus from the dead. That's our faith. That's the good news we profess. That death is not the end of the story. That one day, that life, that eternal life that God designed us for is what our future will be. In bodies in corporate. This is what we will one day know. And just as we taste now the death that one day we will know, so too we taste now the resurrection that we will know that trumps death, that turns it over. The great poet an Anglican priest, John Donne, put it. He said, Death, be not proud, as some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. 
For those whom thou thinkst thou dost overthrow, die not, poor death, nor yet canst thou kill me. From rest and sleep, which yet thy pictures be, much pleasure, then from thee much more must low. And soonest our best men with thee do go, rest of their bones and souls delivery. Thou'rt slave to fate, chance, kings, and desperate men, and dost with poison, war, and sickness dwell. And poppy or charms can make us sleep as well, and better than thy stroke, why swellest thou then? One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. Amen. Amen.